Okay. Good evening, everybody. Welcome back to the Mythgard Academy. This is session number seven of our Sauron Defeated class. We are done with the history of the Lord of the Rings at last after, what, three and a half volumes of that. Um, golly. I wonder when... Can anyone find the date of our first session on the Return of the Shadow? It's been a long time in real-world time that we've been studying the history of the Lord of the Rings. It's kind of a big moment, right? Um, but anyway, we're gonna... Uh, we're, we're tonight gonna start the Notion Club papers, which is one of the best of Tolkien's unfinished works. I mean, it's... I've often said, and I still think, that if I could choose one, you know, if I could come to Tolkien, right, and be like, okay, if I can get one of your unfinished stories finished, here's the one it would be. I've, I've often said it would be the, the, the 1950s tour, uh, the return of the fall of Gondolin and stuff, and I still believe that. That still would be my number one, but Notion Club would be very close. To me, my top three, right, are, you know, the, uh, uh, the you know, the tour, the, the later tour in the Fall of Gondolin, um, the Notion Club papers, and the Fall of Arthur. Those are really, like, my three things that I, uh, you know, that I think are certainly the biggest. Um, but, um, anyway, yeah, so, okay. Oh, Robert, thanks. So it was December, mid-December of 2016, right? So almost not quite three years we've been, uh, you know, with some other things in between, right? Like Sir Thomas Mallory, right? Which was almost a year of that, but still, it's been a while. Um, okay. Anyhow, anyhow, so yeah, the, the Notion Club papers are uh, uh, a really big deal uh, in this way, and I'm, uh, I'm excited uh, to get to them. Um, yeah, I agree, Brian. I mean, Brian is pointing out that it seems that we were at risk of having him finish the Notion Club papers and abandon the Lord of the Rings uh, at one point. Right, exactly. Yeah, no, can't complain about the choice he made there. Um, but, um, but yeah, yeah, definitely. Anyway, okay, so uh, a quick, before we get started here tonight, just a couple quick announcements. Um, let me start with the one most relevant, of course, to us here in this gathering at the Mythgard Academy, and that is it is time for nominations from the Council of the Wise for our next book. Now, I was talking with Ed. Uh, Ed and I were discussing this, and we decided that we're going to we're going to kind of give in to the inevitable here. Um, we're nine volumes. Are, uh, yes, nine. We're nine volumes uh, into the into the history of Middle Earth, and feeling reasonably confident that our every other Tolkien book is is going to carry on through uh, the rest uh, the rest of that. So we've had this sort of pro forma vote where, you know, the next volume of the history of Middle Earth has always won one of the two slots that we're electing for. So actually we decided we're just going to simplify things and just sort of take that as read. So we're, we're assuming at this point, uh, that, that the vote of the people, like the voice of the people has been heard clearly, right? That we want to carry on going through the history of Middle Earth series. So we're just going to assume that we're going to do that. So our next Tolkien book, will definitely be uh will we'll definitely be Morgoth's ring 
Right. Um, so the only thing we're going to be nominating on and voting for is the book in between, right? Our non our next book, our non-Tolkien book that will come between Sauron Defeated and Morgoth's Ring. Um, so that should actually kind of make things more, uh, uh, just more straightforward all around. So uh, for those of you who are uh, who are in Council of the Wise, uh, please begin the nomination process uh, and we will you know, move that through to the, uh, uh, to the voting relatively quickly here. Um, so we should have a, uh, our next book. We should be able to announce that sometime next month, I hope. So Ed will be sending out email reminders uh, for the nominations and the voting. But, um, uh, uh, but so be on the lookout for those. And uh, uh, be thinking about what book to nominate next. I will be very. I'm always. This is always a fun time for me uh, to see what books we get to next. Um, uh, yeah. So no, we're gonna. We're, so Stephen, just nominating one. So the nominating two was when we were doing um, like the two different slots. So it'll just be you're, you'll just be nominating one book uh, and voting on one book. So yeah, a little more, a little more straightforward. Um, so be be working on that. Be thinking about that. I know there are a number of works that have been. You know, it's really funny to kind of watch the the how the voting ebbs and flows, right? You know, there are, there are a couple books that have been, you know, in the finalists for several times in a row, but never get elected. Um, Sometimes they'll be in the finalists for, for a couple times in a row, and then they'll finally break through, right? That happened. I think Watership Down was the first one that happened with. It was a finalist for a while, and then it, and then it won finally. Um, Hitchhiker's Guide was a finalist several times before it won. Um, so uh, anyway, yeah, Stephen, you're right. We've never done a C.S. Lewis, right? It's never happened. American Gods, yeah, Tony. I totally thought American Gods. I thought the last election was going to be American Gods. Um, and then it turned out vastly to my surprise to be Sir Thomas Mallory instead. Um, yeah, yeah. So um, uh, we'll 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 see. We'll see what happens. I'll be. Very, I'm always very interested in this in this process. I try not to try not to sway things too much. I don't seem to be working very. Would be, be very effective as the the uh, the books elected have a uh, share a conspicuously even a suspiciously uh, strong similarity to like my own personal list of favorite books. You'd think I waited the the elections, but I totally don't uh, directly. Anyway, um, <laughs> but anyhow. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, no, lots of things to talk about. Yeah, Devor, I was thinking about that, of course. Uh, uh, you know, Stephen, you mentioned Lewis, and of course, obviously, we're uh, going to be thinking and talking a bit about the uh, uh, Lewis's space trilogy here today uh, in the context of the Notion Club papers. So, uh, uh, you know, yeah, I mean, that you know, Out of the Silent Planet, that sort of does suggest itself, right? The Paralandra is really the best of the spa of the space trilogy. Uh, I've just been rereading those. I'm actually about halfway through rereading that hideous strength now. But um, yeah, Veronica, I was uh, yeah. Uh, Veronica's pointing out if American Gods wins, we have to think about the the new Stars adaptation. It's got a new major adaptation. Yes, in fact, Veronica, I was so I won't say convinced, but I was I was um, I was 
preparing, actively preparing for American Gods to win. So I actually watched the first season of the Stars series like back when the election was still going on. I'm like, all right, I better I better get into this and get ready. And then it didn't win. And I was like, oh, well, okay. Watch the first season anyway. Um, so um, anyway, lots of stuff. Uh, lots of stuff we could do. Uh, I don't think we're going to run out of awesome material for the Mythgard Academy anytime soon. Um, uh, so uh, anyway, cool. Let's... Um, but anyway, a couple other quick announcements I wanted to make. First, uh, don't forget that uh, tomorrow... No, not tomorrow. Today's Wednesday. Friday. Uh, a month from Friday is the first day of our fall semester at Signum University. So if you're a Signum student, don't forget to register. The sooner, the earlier you register, uh, then uh, the better chance you have of influencing the timing of our discussion sections, of course. Um, uh, and for those who might be thinking about auditing, uh, either doing uh, a, a, a premiere audit, just sitting in on the lectures of our new class, which is uh, which is our, our Germanic uh, Myths and Legends class, uh, which is going to be really cool. That's that's in translation, no Old Norse required. Um, so Germanic uh, Myths and Legends uh, in translation is our is our, our brand new course uh, this coming fall. So you can sit in on the lectures for that as a premiere audit, or you can uh, be a discussion audit in almost any of our classes. Um, which means you get to sit in on, on the discussion sections and participate fully. You just don't write the papers and stuff. Um, anyway, so still uh, still time, but great time to uh, remember to sign up for that. Um, we also have, starting today, I think, um, a new Anytime Audit special. An, an, an Anytime Audit special in our Potter Saga class, our big Harry Potter class, uh, taught by Amy Sturgis. Wonderful course. And uh, that's running through Harry's birthday on July 31st. Uh, so uh, uh, to celebrate uh, this this season in the middle of the summer, which is Harry's birthday. We're right at the time when like almost all of the Harry Potter books begin, right? Uh, and... Um, uh, uh, leading up to the time when uh, you know people are getting their Hogwarts letters and stuff, so we're celebrating uh, by uh, uh, having our special on our Potter, Potter Saga uh, 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 Anytime Audit course. So you can see the link to that on the uh, Signum homepage. Um, also, our star-crossed Mythgard Movie Club session on the Camelot musical, which was originally timed for May for when we ended the Mallory section, and it's got postponed now twice uh, due to various myths, mishaps that have caused the rescheduling. Um, we have officially rescheduled that again. I'm confident it's going to happen, and that's going to be on Thursday, August 8th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Uh, so we, we, we will still discuss uh, we will still discuss Camelot, which is going to be a lot of fun. Um, Matt asks, is it too late to join the Council of the Wise for this nomination round? No, it is not. No, it is not. If uh, uh, you get a donations now, <laughs> I'm like looking at the date. Uh, yeah, no, no, it, it's not. It's not. The reason I'm looking at the date is actually the Signum fiscal year ends on the 31st of July. So we're like a week away from the end of the fiscal year. Uh, but yeah, no, it's fine. At, at, at any time, really, it can be joined uh, even after August 1st. It's all good. Um, uh, so, yep, yep. No problem with that. Let's see. Last thing I was going to talk about announcements. Oh, yeah. OK, right. Uh, just moots coming up. Right. So the call for papers for Middle Moot out in Iowa uh, on Saturday, October 12th uh, has been posted on our website. So people who might want to who are, who are 
coming. We had a really great gathering there in Iowa two years ago. Great gathering down in Kansas City. So that that uh, middle moot is, is kind of rotating right now between Iowa and Kansas City, which is really cool. Um, so people who are a little bit further north uh, should be able to make it down uh, into Iowa. If you're in like the Chicago region, you can come out. It's going to be in Waterloo, Iowa. So it's uh, fairly central in Iowa. Um, not too much there in Waterloo itself, but it's, uh, it's, it's a pretty easy drive from lots of different places. Um, anyway, uh, so the call for papers is going to be there. Ted Naismith is going to join us, whose artwork is here uh, on the slide in front of me here. So, uh, uh, yeah, so Ted Naismith is going to be at Middlemoot this year. He's going to be speaking, and so you get a chance to, to meet Ted and, and look at his work and talk about some of his work and uh, that's going to be that's going to be really fun. And yes, the New England moot is also definitely happening this year. It's going to be in Amherst, Massachusetts, uh, and it's going to be on Sunday, September 29th. Sunday, September 29th. Uh, further details still emerging as far as uh, calls for papers and things like that. So. Um, uh, so there we go. Yeah. And yes, Rachel, there are plans for Magnolia Moot this year. The date isn't a hundred percent confirmed, but we're thinking like probably something like the weekend before Halloween is the likely landing spot somewhere around there. Um, so late October, um, uh, is that, that's the, um, probable date, uh, for Magnolia Moot this year. It's going to be down in, uh, in Charlotte, North Carolina again. Uh, yeah, and then we're thinking Baymoot um, and Veronica. We're asking about all the moots. Yeah, so Baymoot. Yes, Baymoot is going to be happening. We're, we're moving that forward. You may remember, uh, Veronica. We did um, we did Baymoot in Oct- in August last year. We're going to push that forward into uh, probably November, early November. Um, again, date not a hundred percent sealed yet, but probably like one of the first couple Saturdays in um, uh, in November will be the Baymoot um, uh, date. That's the, that's, the, that's the plan as of now. Um, uh, uh, Baymoot was held in Oakland last year, uh, Mary. Uh, uh, again, the venue, not yet 100% confirmed. So I'll, I'll, I'll give more information when that's confirmed. But yeah, we were in, uh, 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 we were in Oakland last year um, at uh, uh, what Mills College, uh, the, on, on the, the lovely campus of Mills College. Uh, in Oakland. Um, so yeah, so th- those are, pr- those are, f- are g- probably going to be our four fall moots this year. Um, we're going to do LA again, but LA is going to uh, shift to the, uh, to the spring, well, to the winter, uh, probably in, in, in late February, probably Texas is kind of nudging forward across the line into the beginning of February too, from January where it's been the last couple of years. So we'll probably do Texas in the beginning of Jan of February and then LA closer to the end of February and then back to Orlando in March. Um, and, you know, there have been uh, rumors uh, and uh, discussions. I see Takako's here of a possible moot over in Japan uh, this year, a Nippon moot, uh, which would be super fun. I've never been to Japan. It would be really, really cool uh, to be able to uh, uh, to connect uh, to folks there. Uh, so we're thinking about that. Where that's that uh, uh, active discussions going on. Uh, maybe April or something in Japan uh, would be would be really cool. Uh, Matt, I don't know that the venue has been confirmed, though knowing those Texas organizers, it probably has, and I just don't know about it yet, but, uh, but probably in Waco again, 
I'm thinking, like like we did last year, uh, Matt is is the likeliest. I think um, uh, it's possible that we might kind of meander around sort of central Texas there, uh, maybe do it down in Austin or something one year. But I think we'll probably stay in Waco again. Um, anyway, so. That's the story. Um, and oh, okay. And Kiwi Moot, Kiwi Moot. We've had to postpone Kiwi Moot. Uh, the organizers were we were trying to get things together. We had organizers in place, and then there have been some delays on that end. So we're having to kind of uh, uh, sort things out uh, there. Um, totally not giving out, giving up on Kiwi Moot. I'm confident it's gonna happen, but I'm not 100 percent sure when yet. We're trying to we're trying to sort that out. All of our moots. We owe so much to the the local people who help us organize in different places. Um, it's a lot of work, uh, uh, you, know, uh, and, you know. We we have a, a really good system in place to uh, to support and to help people. Like people aren't on their own, you know, supporting this stuff. We we send them lots of information and guidance, and we help them along the way and everything. But we don't have local connections and local knowledge, right? Which is why we always need help from our local organizers. So always rely on uh the the local folks uh to help with that so so yeah we're we're trying to sort out kiwi moot we'll come back to that soon but um uh as they say i'm totally not giving up on it uh but yeah um cool anyway yeah awesome okay so those are the updates stuff that's coming up Sorry, I kind of dragged on, uh, dragged out the updates, uh, but I know you guys are all interested to hear about the uh, the different um, uh, regional moots coming up. Yeah, our, our regional moot we're looking at so far, we have, um, I guess especially if we can get, um, if the Japan moot comes together, as I'm thinking it might, we're looking at eight different moots happening during this round, during this year. Now, you may have noticed, hang on a second, I didn't mention a Europe moot, right, like we've been having the last two years. That's because in Europe moot, we're, we're going to be back in the UK again this year. We're in the UK, in London, and then we went down to the Netherlands last year for NATO moot, which was awesome, and then we're thinking of going back to the UK this year. Um, right now, our tentative plans are for the UK moot to be maybe in Wales, and maybe push that up into September, so like early September, Labor Day, uh, America time for Wales. Um, it's going to be, it, being in Wales will be fantastic. We'll do like Dragon Moot or something in Wales. Um, so it won't, it, it'll be, you know, there'll be another, so we did one in 2019, we'll do one in 2020, but pushing it up into September, it'll be like on the other side of next fiscal year, right? So during this academic slash fiscal year, uh, we probably won't do a Europe move, but we'll do another one uh, uh, down there. So um, anyway, um, uh, cool. Yes, yes. And uh, 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 first fish, absolutely. We're get, we'll, we'll be back to Kansas City, uh, n- not this year, next year. So probably October of 2020, we'll be back in Kansas City. I had so much fun going to Kansas City last year. Uh, that was really awesome. Um, so anyway, the regional moot calendar is is fantastic. We just finished doing a review of our, uh, you know, because as a lot of, you know, as, as I think I've told you guys before, our goal, Signum's goal, we don't make money on our moots, right? The whole point is just to have them and to to 
to hope that they pay for themselves, right? Our, we, we have this sort of separate events fund, right? That we keep all of the registration funds and all the co- and, you know, take all the costs and everything out. And our goal is just for it to hit zero at the end of the year, right? We just, we just don't want to run a deficit on our events. We can't afford to invest a lot of money at from scratch in there. Uh, but we just want it to, to break even. So we try to charge as little as we can to make it as easy as possible for people to come and, um, uh, anyway, so we j- this past year we did seven moots, this seven regional moots plus myth moot this past year. Uh, so it was our first like full blown regional moot year, uh, and you know it was a bit of an adventure. Didn't ha- didn't know how it would turn out, but it turned out awesome. Actually, we ended up um, we ended up our seven regional moots together, like our seven regional moots combined, ended up like almost exactly breaking even. We were like. Uh, $300 in the black. I was like, yeah, oh man, that's the way it's done. <laughs> so it was fantastic. It was really great. Everything worked out great. So I'm now, I'm coming into the second year in our regional moot program with like more enthusiasm and more confidence. Uh, and I'm ready to, I'm ready to keep expanding and, 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 and keep going. Another, another fun year of travel ahead and uh, getting to, see so many of you again uh, uh, as I got to last year and to hopefully expand to get to see more people still thinking about, by the way, my two top places I would like to hold moots that we don't hold moots yet, apart from Kiwi Moot, which I've already mentioned, uh, would be uh, Pacific Northwest, like Seattle area and uh, Toronto. Um, uh, You know, something in Canada. So yeah, um, I'm thinking... Yeah, first fish. Yeah, I'm thinking basically like if we could somewhere around Seattle because from Seattle we could reach both like Portland and and uh, Vancouver as well. It's you know it's sort of central there. Um, but yeah, something something like that. So yeah, Maple Moot, Maple Moot in Toronto. Uh, I don't even know what I'd call the Moot. Uh, I don't know enough about the Pacific Northwest. I've never been there in my life. Uh, so I, I would love to go. I'd love to meet a bunch of you guys out there. So anyway, those would be those are like on my personal list of things that I really think that we should totally do. Evermoot. Ooh, that's a good name, Tarlonio. Evermoot. I like that. Um, um, but um, uh, anyway, yeah. So uh, <laughs> we'll 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 see. We'll see. You know, Pittsburgh, somebody mentioned Pittsburgh. Yeah, like the middle moot is kind of my vague East Coast person's gesture towards, you know, a, like a moot in the Midwest, which I define as like, <laughs> it's like people on the East Coast and West Coast do, right? Like everything between New York and California is sort of vaguely the Midwest, right? I know that's not the definition of the Midwest. Um, but anyway, so, you know, we've got middle moot sort of down central. I'm right? getting you know, Iowa and Kansas City. So we're kind of getting the great, the northern part of the Great Plains and, uh, you know, sort of the southern part of the Midwest. But I know something out, um, something out in the... Uh, you know, more sort of eastern, easterly regions, right out in the kind of Ohio, Pittsburgh area would be really good, too. Um, I know Toronto doesn't really sort of satisfy that. But um, uh, anyway, yeah, yeah. Um, so all of <laughs> James Stevens is suggesting Moot Rainier. Uh <laughs> for the Northwest mood. 
<laughs> I kind of like that. Anyway, um, yeah, so I totally, I'm always open to like pitches and proposals if people, you know, if there are people in those areas, if there are people in Pacific Northwest, if there are people in, you know, like sort of the Toronto area, uh, people in um, like that Ohio, Pittsburgh area. Um, I'm very open to doing, uh, uh, to, to working with you guys, just get in touch and we'll, uh, uh, we'll see, we'll see what we can do. Um, anyway, let's move on to the Ocean Club papers. Uh, I could talk about, uh, I, I'm so excited about our regional mood program and how, uh, how much fun it was this past year that I, uh, I could talk about it all night, but I should not do that because I want to talk about the Notion Club papers. So, um, as Christopher Tolkien explains at the beginning uh, the Notion Club papers are super complicated, right? Um, and really difficult, and especially since, as Christopher implies, a lot of the momentum of especially the second part of the Notion Club papers got kind of absorbed with language building, right? When he was working on Adunayak. Um, and so it, it makes it sort of especially hard to kind of piece all this stuff together. Right. Um, so anyway, it's um, uh, it's fairly complicated looking at the opening of it, though. It, it, it's sort of interesting to see, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm fine with not being able to kind of piece together exactly step by step how it did. But it's interesting to see how it seems to emerge. Right. Um, because the very beginning. So this is the title page in the A manuscript, right? So this is seems to be where he kind of began, right? And the title of it is Beyond Lewis, or Out of the Talkative Planet, being a fragment of an apocryphal inkling saga made by some imitator at some time in the 1980s. Preface to the Inklings. While listening to this fantasia, if you do, I beg of the present company not to look for their own faces in this mirror, for the mirror is cracked, and at the best, you will only see your countenances distorted, and adorned maybe with noses and other features, that are not your own, but belong to other members of the company, if to anybody. Okay, so there's, um, uh, there's a lot here, right? Um, uh, so, okay. We begin with Beyond Lewis or Out of the Talkative Planet. So it is clear... Well, okay. And then he has this address to the Inklings. Actually, let's not start there. Let's start with the address to the Inklings, right? The preface to the Inklings makes it pretty clear that like, what the premise of this initial story was, right? Whether or not... He characterizes this as having another go at The Lost Road, Right? Whether or not it really began with that is a little bit unclear to me, right? Um, what is very clear is that this begins as a sort of a fun piece, um, a fun piece for the Inklings, for the benefit of the Inklings, at the expense of the Inklings and for the benefit of the Inklings, right? This is kind of one big inside joke in a sense, right? Um, and so he's begging them not to look for their own faces in this mirror. And that's, of course, both um, uh, that's both serious and not serious, right? I mean, 
anytime any author says, oh, the characters in this book bear no resemblance to real people, you know that, like, they almost certainly do bear resemblance to real people, right? If they didn't, they wouldn't say that. Uh, so, um, uh, so, you know, on the one hand, this whole disclaimer seems almost to invite them to do it, right? Um, but there's another side to that, too. On the one hand, yeah, obviously the real inklings inspired this and there are, but at the same time, it does seem equally clear that there is a certain amount of, um, like feature shifting, right? Um, we do get those notes, which Christopher says in that first manuscript where he does equate some of the different characters with different people, right? Um, like frankly is Lewis, right? C.S. Lewis. Uh, and Laudum is Hugo Dyson. Um, so, you know, he does annotate it. So it was clear that at one point, at least at the beginning, he was kind of thinking in those terms. He was thinking of doing a kind of, what, parody, sort of, send-up in some way, right, of his friends in the Inklings, in, you know, in these different characters. Um, however, um, whether... I'm not sure what what was the situation. Either he started off with that intention to like make actual like Raymer's going to be me and Frankly's going to be Lewis and Loudum is going to be Dyson, um, uh, you know, and uh, uh, what's his name Dolbear is going to be Havard. You know whether he whether he started off with that plan and then deviated from it as the story began to to build right. Uh, and the characters begin to kind of establish themselves in their own characters uh, rather than just following along with their real-world parallels, um, or whether he departed from that from the beginning um, and was only really ever kind of half-hearted in, in drawing those parallels. Um, that seems to me a little bit unclear. One thing that is perfectly clear is that from the beginning, there are a lot of major differences. Like, if they're supposed to be kind of parodic versions of the real-world originals, they're not very close, right? Uh, so, frankly, is not very much like C.S. Lewis, right? Um, now, you could imagine, I can imagine, anyway, uh, that there's some jokes involved there, right? Like, that, that is the differences between the, the characters in the Notion Club papers and their real-world parallels would themselves, not far from distancing those characters from the real people uh, would be like particular jokes at the expense of those real world people, right? Um, and some elements, I think, could do that. Like, for instance, I know we have some reasons to believe, and I hear I'm thinking especially of the comments that um, the comments that Tolkien wrote in the margins next to C.S. Lewis's comments on the Lay of Lathian, right? So Tolkien writes the Lay of Lathian, sends it to Lewis. Lewis does his elaborate commentary where he pretends to be doing a, you know, a scholarly uh, critique of this old poem, right? Treating the Lay of Lathian as if it were an old poem and talking about fake scholarly debates about the provenance of certain lines and stuff. Really, really awesome uh, uh, critique by C.S. Lewis. The comments that Tolkien wrote in the margin to himself, right? Responding to Lewis's comments, especially when Lewis suggests new lines, right? Uh, suggest that Tolkien was at least, had at least a, uh, 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 hmm, 
was at least resistant to, did not have, did not really love Lewis's poetic style, right? So the fact that Franklin uh, is a uh, is a poet, right? I mean that's his thing. He he's a poet. Could be a bit of a joke at Lewis, right? You know Lewis who started off sort of as a poet and published poetry. Um, and, you know, Tolkien kind of, and then, you know, of course, went on to publish, like, lots of other things, uh, had already published, like, five novels by this time. Um, so, you know, you could, I, I, I can see the fact that, frankly, is merely a poet, right, not a novelist at all. Um, while it seems to distance him from the real Lewis, could also be kind of a joke uh, at Lewis, right? Um, but then there are other elements, like, it's Lewis, it's the Lewis character, frankly, who dislikes and disapproves of everything Northern, right? Of all the Norse and Germanic stuff. Like, he hates all that stuff. Um, and that's not Lewis. That's the opposite of Lewis. Um, and that doesn't seem to be, unlike the other thing, um, it seems to be, um, it seems to be a, I don't know, um, I have a hard time seeing that as like him teasing Lewis exactly. I mean, instead he just seems to have placed an entirely different, um, uh, you know, he just se seems to have uh, uh, put this entirely alien thing, which is kind of the opposite of Lewis's actual likings of Lewis's actual personality. So again, like at what point does this suggest that again he's just making jokes about like that he's comically he's like Lewis but comically unlike Lewis yeah I, you know again I don't really um, sort of exactly follow how that comes out or whether it's just he quickly abandoned you know the idea of these exact parallels and instead found it more fun to kind of have all of rather than having a Dyson character, a Lewis character, a Tolkien character, a Havard character, um, have all of the characters be kind of a mash, right, of the different things so that the experience of the whole, right, the experience of their group discussion can still be a lot like an Inkling's discussion, right, but without having each one of the characters be a particular parody of a particular person. Um, that is, um, uh, that is uh, my own thought here is that he he abandoned the di the, the the direct equivalences. Not that he you know not that this is like oh pay no attention this has nothing to do with the inklings. Of course it has to do with the inklings, right? I mean he calls it an apocryphal inkling saga, right? Uh, there's no question that that's what's in his mind, and I have no doubts. I mean when I read the Notion Club papers, um, I feel. I don't know. I my guess is that what Tolkien gives us in the Notion Club papers is very close to the spirit. Like, if you want to know what it might have been like to be at an Inklings meeting, how they talk to each other, the kinds of things that they talked about, um, this to me absolutely, um, absolutely sounds uh, like how I I suppose it probably was. Um, uh, again, not to be able to find the exact thing. So, um, so Rachel, yeah, the, the whole mirror is cracked thing. At first, it sounds like it might just be, you know, uh, a, a kind of special pleading, right? Like, uh, uh, you know, what, trying to keep people from being offended or something like that. But, but I, I, I tend, 
the more I read it, the more I, I, I'm inclined to believe exactly that, that, or even to go even a step beyond what he says here, that it's not exactly a mirror, at least not a mirror of the individual people meant to be kind of a mirror of the group, but not a mirror of the individual people. Now, the other piece of, um, uh, well, that's interesting. First fish was asking, um, could he have hoped that the Inklings would survive the generations and some decade down the road would still be going in a similar form? Hmm. I doubt it. I wouldn't think. I don't know. I mean, I'm not sure if they necessarily thought that way about the Inklings. Um, the thing that is... Yeah. It's not like that. things like that don't happen. Um... First Fish, the primary thing that leads me to be disinclined to think that they would have thought that way is the extent to which the Inklings were private. Um, it wasn't like it was a college club. If it were a college club, then there would be an expectation that most likely it would be carried on, you know, and you'd be thinking about appointing successors and things like that. Um, but... Um, uh, but anyway, um, the uh, the fact that the Inklings were really just a bunch of people that hung out in you know Lewis's rooms and and in you know the the Burden Baby um, doesn't suggest to me necessarily that you know they were assuming or thinking that this was going to be. Uh, a sort of normal thing, you know, a, a thing that was going to go on and live past them. Karita, uh, yeah, I, it is a good joke, right? Karita's pointing out that, of course, with, you know, the mirror is cracked. Um, don't look for your own faces in this mirror, for the mirror is cracked. The mirror is the story, right? And cracked does also mean crazy, so it's also kind of a funny, self-deprecating joke, right? Um, uh about his own craziness or sort of the craziness of this story uh, in one way and another, right? So uh, 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 it reminds me, Carita, of the the bats in the belfry joke that Raymer's making right at the end of the section that we read for today. Um, but um, anyway, okay, so the last point, of course, well, okay, so the last two points to talk about, first of all, the dating made by some imitator at some time in the 1980s. Remember, this is the first draft, right? So, he has moved the Inklings forward in time, or these, this apocryphal Inkling saga, these, this pseudo-Inklings meeting, right? He's moved it forward by, like, 40 years into the 80s. Um, that distance of time I'm not a hundred percent sure I'm trying I've been trying to figure figure that out um, the displacement of time from their present day um, I mean it makes sense to displace it in time right it, it makes the distinction more clear like this is not just about us right this is not just about all of you guys here um, this is, we're imagining, I mean, one opportunity, of course, that he provides by making it happen 40 years later is that they can talk about C.S. Lewis's recent book, Paralandra, um, 
uh, as if it were an old book, right? Uh, so that by itself is kind of something that you gain from pushing it forward into the 80s. Um, you certainly wouldn't want to push it backwards in time because then they wouldn't be able to talk about all the stuff he wants. You know, they wouldn't be talking about science fiction in the same way if he had moved it back, you know, 40 years earlier uh, than their current time. Uh, so the dismay, the displacement forward uh, makes uh, makes a little bit more sense. I don't think I don't see much reason to suspect. So here's um, uh, you know, we know that he was interested in doing time travel stuff before, and. The, tra- the time travel story that he began writing in The Lost Road sort of started vaguely in the present day and moved forward in time before it then started jumping back in time. Um, here he's beginning by jumping forward, right? Yeah. Oh, and Karita, you are so right. Uh, you know, Karita, I don't think I've ever done that before. I've always, when reading the Notion Club papers, I can't help but picture a gathering of people that look suspiciously like, you know, pictures of Lewis and Tolkien and Hugo Dyson and everybody else. Um, uh, But you're absolutely right, Karita. It is so much more fun to picture, mentally picture the Notion Club uh, papers um, and the participants being like Lewis and Tolkien and Hugo Dyson and the rest, except dressed in 1980s fashions. Absolutely. That is so much more fun. Um, yeah. In fact, I almost want to see that. Exactly, James. It's like the Inklings meets the breakfast, the, the breakfast club, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, yep. No, that is, um, I, <laughs> yeah, Terlonial's asking who has the mullet. Yeah, well, I, I, I think that um, uh, Nicholas Guildford has the mullet. Terlonial. That's that's my guess. I'm just saying. Yeah, the Breakfast Club papers. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, you know, Korea Week, uh, the Breakfast Club papers. Do you think we should just go right to Netflix with this idea or what? (laughs) Oh, man. That would be fantastic. Absolutely fantastic. Um, Anyway. anyway. (laughs) I'm going to I'm going to try to set that mental image aside. Um, He goes right at Lewis in the title, right? Beyond Lewis or out of the talkative planet. Um, I'm not 100% sure why Beyond here. Um, Out of the Talkative Planet is obviously a a double joke, right? It's a joke on the title of Lewis's book, Out of the Silent Planet. um, And it's a joke at the expense of the Inklings, right? Like if, uh, uh, you know, to call the planet on which the Inklings meet uh, the silent planet is funny, right? Um, uh, Obviously, when you're sitting around the burden baby... It's a, it's it sounds more like the talkative planet than the silent planet, um, so that's um, uh, that's uh, really um, uh, so I mean, that's a funny joke, um, but of course by kind of putting 
you know, having two titles, one of which is beyond Lewis and the other one of which takes Lewis's title and turns it on its head, makes it all seem very kind of targeted uh, towards Lewis himself. Right. And of course, it's going to be Lewis's book uh, that comes up here. All of this suggests to me that um, the impetus of this writing um, and that's why I remember I said that I wasn't. 100% convinced that when Tolkien sat down and put pen to page here, he was primarily uh, planning to begin writing, rewriting The Lost Road. Um, He characterizes it that way, like in the letter to Milton Waldman that Christopher Tolkien quotes in the preface. But of course, he's characterizing it that way after the fact, right? On the day he sat down and wrote this page, right? On the day he sat down and starts manuscript A, is that what he thought he was doing? Did he thought? Did he think he was? He did he sit down and be like, "Hey, I'm gonna have another crack at the Lost Road, except I'm gonna do it this way. I'm gonna do it through a pseudo inklings meeting." Is that what he did, or is that what ended up happening, but not what he set out to do? And the title page suggests to me that what he's setting out to do is to write a critique of Peroandra, right, which had recently been published. So, um. And not just a general critique of Peroandra, but the things which you could, um, the topic they're going to be discussing, right? The primary emphasis of their discussion through this whole section that we're talking about today is this gap between the, the frame and the body of a science fiction story, right? You need to get to a foreign planet, but you've got to have the moving van, as they call it, right? You've got to somehow get your protagonist to another planet, and then stuff happens at the other planet, and that's really cool and interesting, and then presumably it's got to come back at the end, right? Uh, so the whole um, uh, the whole uh, uh, discussion is about making... Can that frame be made to fit the story that happens inside it? You know, the mechanism of transport to another is, is, is the challenge, and of course we'll, we'll see a bunch of things that they talk about there. This, of course, is the context in which Paralandra itself specifically comes up for criticism, right? Um, That if we assume, and we have to be super careful about this, by the way, so like, quick disclaimer before we begin even getting into their discussion at all, um, the disclaimer is that it's hard for us to be really sure where Tolkien himself sits, right? Is one of these voices his perspective and the others are not? Right? Um, is his own thought kind of distributed among several people? There, there's no narrator, right? We get no narrator character. Um, it's just, uh, uh, I mean, well, Guildford is sort of the narrator, right? Um, but during the discussion, we get very few cues, right? Um, we get very few cues uh, as to like how we're supposed to take any of this. Right. Um, as for like where, you know, Tolkien does not really show his hand as far as where he stands, apart from the fact that Nicholas Guildford gets the majority of the words. Right. You know, he is the dominant speaker all the way through. That doesn't necessarily mean that Tolkien agrees with him. Right. But he he, he is the loudest uh, of them and the most insistent of all of them. Um, but anyway, um, it's Guildford who's going to be criticizing Perlandra. Right. So again, I ask myself, what um, uh, what is um, what is the 
um, what seems to be the probable purpose of this. Here's a, let me, uh, let me tell a fictitious story that seems to me to fit. No idea if this is true, right? But here's the version of this which seems to me to fit. Tolkien wants to give some criticism of Perelandra. And so, but he has this idea, right, of reading it as a creative work of his own, right? So he's going to express his criticism through a work of fiction. This, of course, seems very Tolkien to me, right? I mean, how often in his career does he express his critical opinion through fiction? Most of the time, in fact, right? That's why his creative works uh, so greatly outweigh his scholarly publications, right? Anyway, so he's going to... So so my thought is, my theory... Let me just call it my theory. My theory, then, is that his criticism of Perelandra is the sort of the kernel of this story, right? The initial nugget. And then he has the idea, okay, I'm, I'll, I'll express this. I'm going to do a fake, uh, a, 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 a sort of spoof Inklings meeting, right? And he's going to couch the debate, right, within the context of a, of a fake uh, Inklings uh, meeting, so, which he can read out. He's obviously planning to read it to the Inklings. That's why he's addressing them in the second person in this preface, right? Um, so it's clearly meant for their amusement. It's clearly targeted at Lewis, not because he's, I think, necessarily like intending to be super harsh to Lewis, but rather because he is, um, I, you know, what he's doing is, is a critique of, of Lewis's recent work. Right. Um, so Tolkien is kind of the, the, or, you know, Lewis is, is therefore sort of the, the primary target of the whole thing, which is why it comes up in the title. Um, yeah. Um, so, yeah, Takako, I also would be really curious how he would read the criticism part, like the tone of voice in which he would read it and everything. Um, but the story is going to take a turn, right? Um, and the turn is going to come very suddenly. And my theory is that that turn might even possibly have caught Tolkien himself by surprise. This also is a thing that we, over the course of the history of Middle-earth discussions, have seen happen many times, right? When all of a sudden he discovers that a story that he's writing is going in a direction that he did not anticipate, right? Whether it's like the time the Black Rider rode onto the screen and he's like, you know, rode onto the stage and he's like, what the heck is going on? Who is this guy, right? Um, or whatever. We've seen this. And I suspect that where where we get towards the end of part one there is 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 a moment like that. Just a theory. I don't really know. Um it's hard to tell for sure. Um but um but that anyway is kind of to to me that reading seems to fit. Whereas if he's if his whole purpose from the beginning was to rewrite the Lost Road, he's going a very long way about it and a rather strange way about it. And especially this opening here doesn't at all um, suggest that um, he had that in mind from the beginning, right? I mean, he's 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 playing his cards pretty close to the chest if he's sitting down to you know rewrite the Lost Road from the first page here. Um, anyway, 
So no idea how valid my theory is. Uh, and maybe you guys have better theories, but that's, that's my thought on it. Um, Stephen, yeah, exactly. By, by presenting his criticisms to Lewis as a discussion like this, then Tolkien himself, um, can have some defenders as well as critics, which helps sort of soften the message. And also, Stephen, I would say, allows him to look at it from a couple different angles as well, right? So it's it's not only just in the sense of making the criticism sound less harsh, um, which it does do because he then puts in defenders. And also, of course, again, needless to say, and everybody has fun with everybody, you know, sort of tweaking various people's noses, including Lewis's, right, throughout. Um, but... Um, yeah, yeah, um, yeah, good. Um, and Brian, I agree, Brian says this opening is very targeted towards the Inklings and can't have been intended to be read by anyone else. That's how it sounds to me as well. Um, I really don't think this is him sitting down to write a book. And we know, as much as Tolkien sometimes talks about like these things as private, the only thing that I'm convinced was really private like stuff that he wrote that he really didn't intend other people to look at were like his his language word lists and stuff. When he was working on his languages, that I think was kind of just for himself, right? Not that he was never going to use it in publication or anything, but, you know, when he's writing his Quenya word lists, like that's private. When he's writing a story, he, he he's thinking about publication. He was always thinking about publication. He's sending this stuff away. He sent away The Lost Road to the to a publisher, right? We know that he was thinking about getting all these things published. Um, but I agree with you, Brian. This doesn't sound like that. This doesn't have... At least at the, at the beginning, it doesn't have that sort of sense of this is a story being... It sounds more like a private joke. Like, you know, again, he wants to deliver this criticism and so he's going to write this story which would take, you know, what, I don't know, maybe an hour to read to the Inklings. Um, and that seems uh, 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 like it would totally work. And John, exactly. John Caldwell says, a critique of Lewis's space story would, I think, naturally draw Tolkien back to the time travel story. Exactly. It doesn't seem at all to me strange by sitting down to write about the space trilogy. Of course, you know, remember when we talked about The Lost Road, Out of the Silent Planet and The Lost Road were like companion pieces in a sense from the beginning, right? So um, that his mind got back onto, into the sort of The Lost Road groove is not surprising at all, right? Even if he doesn't start there, it's not surprising at all that he would end up there. Um, Yeah. Yeah. Oh, and Steve and I agree. There have to be so many inside jokes and references that nobody can possibly get. Absolutely. This is, uh, um, I think, talking about other sort of fake lists, I was talking about my list of like stories, which I would theoretically like Tolkien to, uh, to, uh, to finish. This would be at the very, very top of my list of stories I would like to, like, if I could sit down with Tolkien, right? Uh, you know, if like the ghost of Tolkien could appear and give me like a few hours to this, I, I, I mean, I, I think the Notion Club papers might be one of the number one things I'd want to talk about, right? Um, I would want to go through and be like, okay, can you just kind of, you know, tell me the jokes? I, I, I want to get the jokes. I don't get the jokes. I know I'm, I'm getting like 10% of the humor uh, of all this stuff. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Okay. So let's um, let's carry on making slow progress today. Um, 
the frame in which he puts the increasingly elaborate frame in which he puts these papers though are very comical on the one hand this is kind of serious geek humor right serious geek humor uh because um you know like the the whole you know let's try to do a you know textual critical uh, analysis of these fake, you know, so like the, the multiple layers of, of fake textual history is something which would amuse many of the inklings and very few other people. Right. Uh, but anyway, okay. These papers have a rather puzzling history. They were found after the summer examinations of 2012 on top of one of another, one of a number of sacks of waste paper in the basement of the examination schools at Oxford by the present editor, Mr. Howard Green, the clerk of the schools. They were in a disordered bundle, loosely tied with a re- with red string. The outer sheet inscribed in large Lombardic capitals, Notion Club Papers. Sorry, I don't have proper Lombardic capitals there uh, in my uh, font index. Attracted the notice of Mr. Green, who removed them and scrutinized them. Discovering them to contain much that was to him curious and interesting, he made all possible enquiries without result. The papers, from internal evidence, clearly had no connection with any examinations held or lectures given in the schools during Mr. Green's many years of office. Neither did they belong to any of the libraries housed in the building. Advertisement has failed to find any claimant to ownership. It remains unknown how the papers reached the waste paper sack. It seems probable that they had at some time been prepared for publication, since they are in many places provided with notes— Yet in form, they are nothing more than an elaborate minute book of a club devoted to conversation, debate, and the discussion of papers, in verse or prose, written and read by its members. And many of the entries have no particular interest for non-members. And there, Brian, is another, uh, seems to be another kind of dig, right? The expectation that nobody outside the Inklings is going to find this funny or care. Um, Yeah, okay. So, the fact that... um, uh, the fact that he that they're found in the in the uh, the waste paper bin, right, is funny, right. So I mean that 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 puts the whole thing. So like, let's imagine a future Inklings group, right, and their minutes being found in the waste paper bin. But of course, it's the mystery of the waste paper bin. Like, how did they get? into the sack of waste paper, uh, in the, in the, uh, you know, in the basement of the examination schools at Oxford, right? Notice also the date, um, 2012, right? So this is the distant, distant future. Um, so he's imagining a super distant future, you know, the one seven years ago, uh, which, which is then the survival you know, 20 years later of the group in the 1980s, probably, right? Presumably, based on what he said, uh, based on what he said before. Um, Yeah. Um, Yeah. Um, So, the mysteriousness of this is interesting. The fact that he creates not just a provenance for it, but a mysterious provenance for it. Um, that they turn up in the waste bin and nobody knows how they got in the bin, nobody knows where they came from, puts them in this 
really bizarre um, into this really bizarre category, right? On the one hand, they were in the trash. On the other hand, it's like a miracle how they got in the trash. So there's like, it's like the mysterious, maybe even miraculous trash, right? So the way that he kind of plays it both ways, that there is something uh, like an extraordinary secret behind these papers um, is uh, is cool, right? Um, but then, but then, of course, they were actually in the trash and aren't really worth anything. Um, they were going to be published, but weren't published. Apparently, maybe, right? Um, so he seems very interested in maintaining the uh, kind of ambiguity of the status of this document, right? Um, <laughs> Curita says that miraculous trash. That's it. My new discord name. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Exactly. It could be like Dora Baggins' waste paper basket. Uh, James, that seems, that seems very likely. Um, yeah, exactly. All right. Well, let's, uh, let's keep going. So, but then, but, but there's more. It's not just a question of how, like where they came from and who put them there and how they got into the trash. Um, there's also now having been unearthed, right? Having been brought to light, there becomes this scholarly debate on the dating of the actual texts themselves. Right. And the problem is they, the, the, so, well, okay. So, um, they just explained. So this is, uh, uh, these scholars have looked at it, right? And they've said, okay, everything about these papers suggest they were actually written in the 40s, right? Um, the, the, the paper, the ink, like all, you know, so they're doing like the full textual scholarship thing, right? And the result of their textual analysis is that this looks like, this is, it seems almost certain to have been written in the 40s, right? But there's a problem. It remains nonetheless on this hypothesis a puzzling fact that the great explosion of 1975 is referred to, and even more precisely, the great storm, which actually occurred on the night of Thursday, June 12, 1987, though certain inaccuracies appear in the account given of the progress and effects of the later event, of the latter event. Mr. Green has proposed to us a curious explanation of this difficulty. Remember, Green was the guy who found them in the first place, right? Evidently suggested to him by the contents of the papers. The future events were, he thinks, foreseen. In our opinion, a less romantic but more probable solution is this. The paper is part of a stock purchased by a man resident in Oxford about 1940. He used the paper for his minutes, whether fictitious or founded on fact. But he did not use all his stock. Much later, after 1987, he copied out his matter again, using up the old paper. Though he did not make any general revision, he moved the dates forward and inserted the genuine references to the explosion and the storm. Okay, so you notice the textual difficulty here, right? The textual difficulty is that all of the evidence suggests that it was from the 40s. But if that's true, the actual content of the narrative talks about things, predicts, accurately predicts things that did in fact happen, apparently, right, in 1975 and 1987. 
Uh, so how could that be? Our clearly skeptical textual critics reject the idea of foreseeing the future, right? That is mere romanticism, of course, in their view. So they posit the more probable... So they come up with a scenario which would explain how this text would look like it came from the 1940s, but obviously it must have been written after 1987, because it includes references to an event in 1987, quite remarkably accurate references to an event in 1987. So it was obviously written after 1987. How then does it have the appearance of a 1940s document? And this is their explanation. Recopying on the same set of paper his old minutes and including into those minutes uh, inserting references to the explosion in the storm. That'll do it. That explains it. Um... Yes, D.N. Barrow is the is the name of one of the textual to the textual critics here, uh, which is uh, which is excellent. Um, absolutely, Devora. This is very much like. Um, in fact, I would even Devora go so far as to say that I think this is this is an allusion to debates which were then current about the dating of biblical texts. Right. I mean, one of the. Um, uh, one of the reasons for, you know, dating the Gospel of John at a certain time is that it seems to talk about the fall of Jerusalem, right? The conquering of Jerusalem by the Romans. Um, uh, so it must have been written after that time, right? Well, I mean, unless it was, in fact, predicting accurately that future event. Um, so it, the, that that question of, like, you know, how do you approach this kind of, you know, a thing which looks to be prophecy, even claims to be prophecy, and seems to be accurate. Can you, do you, you know, so yeah, that was definitely kind of a thing, right? That was sort of in the air at that time. Um, of course, still is to some extent. Um, but, um, uh, but yeah, I do think he's playing on exactly the same, the same kind of things. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, Brian says it's funny how similar some of this textual research uh, examining the provenance of the paper and everything is similar to what Christopher did in putting together the history of Middle Earth. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. No, it's it's uh, this is this is straightforward textual criticism. Right. Christopher's doing it right. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, exactly. No. Th- yeah. It is important to remember the date. Right. He's writing this book, right, in the 40s. This is, what, 1944 that he's writing this. Um, so he's talking about things that are going to happen, of course, after we know he's going to die in 73. Uh, so he's talking about these things are distant future uh, to him. Um, and that, of course, needs to be remembered. Remember 1944 throughout the like the discussion about will man ever get to the moon or anything like that, right? Um, it's quite interesting to to hear him talk about spaceships and everything. Um, and uh, anyway, yeah, lots that could be said about that. Um, okay, let's uh, keep going. Here's the rebuttal. Mr. Green rejoins, This is one of the most fantastic probable solutions I have yet met, quite apart from the unlikelihood of an inferior paper being stored for about 50 years and then used for the same purpose again. The writer was not, I think, a very young man, but the handwriting is certainly not that of an old man. Yet, if the writer was not young in 1940, he must have been old, very old, in 2000. 
for it is to that date, not to 1987, that we must look. There is a point that has escaped the notice of Messrs. Warmold and, Bar- and Barrow. The old house, number 100 Banbury Road, the last private dwelling house on, in that block, was in fact the scene of hauntings, a remarkable display of poltergeist activity between the years 2000 and 2003, which only ended when the house was demolished and a new building, attached to the Institute of National Nutrition, erected on the site. In the year 2003, a person possessed of the paper, the pen habits, and the idiom of the period of the Six Years' War would have been an oddity that no pseudonym could conceal from us. In any case, the storm is integral to all entries from night 63 to night blank, and is not just inserted. Messrs. Warmald and Barrow must either neglect their own evidence and place the whole composition after 1987, or else stick to their own well-founded suspicions of the paper, the hand, and the idiom, and admit that some person or persons in the 1940s possessed a power of prevision. Okay. Um, yes, uh, Takako, I agree. Poltergeist is an, is a maybe not a word you were expecting to hear from Tolkien, right? Yes, that's uh, not something he normally talks about. Um ghost stories um not a lot of ghosts right well some i guess i mean you can say the uh you know you kind of put the oathbreakers into this category i guess um but not in a those are kind of so like special cases i mean like in the in the modern sense just thinking about hauntings and poltergeists um yeah. Tony, I agree. The Six Years' War as a name for World War II uh, is kind of amazing, right? Um, that's him imagining what the future world is likely to call the war that was still going on at the time that he was writing, right? Um, uh, 1944. 1944, right? Um, yeah. Anyway. By the way, I also love the reference to the Institute of National Nutrition, right? You can see uh, what tol- what direction Tolkien thought uh, the city of Oxford was going in. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's pretty... Uh, it's also very, um, very NICE, very that hideous strength, right? You can so- sort of see, uh, uh, you know, him and Lewis thinking in similar kind of directions. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Stephen, uh, Stephen says, I kept getting the Six Years' War confused with the Six Days' War, forgetting that, that it wouldn't happen for a couple decades yet. Yeah, I think, Stephen, I, I, I've a couple times kind of read over that for that very reason, right? Thinking that that's what the reference was to. And then I'm like, no, wait a second. That's not, in fact, it's the Six Years' War. Yeah, okay. So, this debate... Right, uh, this debate between uh, uh, Warmold and Barrow and Green, right, about the provenance of the thing of of this text. The upshot of it is once again to point to or suggest miracle, right? These aren't just texts from the nineteen forties, probably. These are miraculous texts from the 1940s. Texts from the 1940s 
that foresee with precision events of the 70s and 80s, right? Um, so that is uh, um, very interesting. That is very interesting. Um, once again, from near the beginning, we can see this sense of, and here, you know, by the time we're into here, we're no longer in, the first slide was just the very first draft. This is no longer just the very first draft. Um, so some new ideas might have worked into here. I, I wanted to look at that first title page as a glimpse into what might seem the probable reason of why he sat down to write this thing in the first place, right? But already, with the miraculous trash, and now with the prevision. Uh, that is sort of seems clearly clear to green anyway, uh, clearly involved. Um, now doubly has introduced this element of mystery, this element of magic into the story in this very kind of dorky, uh, uh, kind of mundane way, right through textual analysis. But, um, we are being prepared already here for something extraordinary that this is not going to be... It sounds boring, right? The minutes of a discussion club. Uh, sounds kind of dull, but it's not dull, right? It's not going to be... We, we're, we're being warned here that something strange is afoot. Okay. Uh, just a few of the Dramatis Personae. I wanted to kind of look at these. And I talked about this a little bit, so I won't spend too much time on this already. Uh, but let's just sort of look through here. So Michael George Raymer. Uh, Jesus College, born 1929 in Hungary, professor of Finno-Ugric philology, but better known as a writer of romances. Uh, Ugric languages, of course, are like Hungarian, uh, the, the old languages, uh, the, you know, the study of historical Hungarian, basically. Uh, so Finno-Ugric would mean Finland and Hungary, essentially. Um, but better known as a writer of romances. Um, First of all, how funny is that sentence? Professor of Finno-Ugric philology, but better known as a writer of romances. His parents returned to England when he was four, but he spent a good deal of time in Finland and Hungary between 1956 and 68. Among his interests are Celtic languages and antiquities. Okay. Uh, and then I, I've skipped... Uh, uh, I've skipped uh, Guildford and... Um, what's his name? Dolbear. Because um, I wanted to look at the, I was particularly interested in how he brought in the different academic um, specialties here. Alwyn Arundel uh, Laudum, BNC, born 1938, lecturer in English language, chiefly interested in Anglo-Saxon, Icelandic, and comparative philology. Occasionally writes comic or satirical verse, known as Eri. Philip Frankley, Queens, born 1932. A poet, once well-known as a leader of the queer meter movement, but now just a poet, still publishing volumes of collected verse, suffers from horror borealis, as he calls it, and is intolerant of all things northern or Germanic. He is, all the same, a close friend of Loudham. Wilfred Trewin Jeremy, Corpus Christi, born 1942, university lecturer in English literature. He specializes in escapism, and has written books on the history and criticism of ghost stories, time travel, and imaginary lands. 
Uh, <laughs> now just a poet is really funny, Karita. I agree. And uh, it's also very clear that leader of the queer meter movement would certainly have meant something different in the mid forties than it means today, than it would mean today. Uh, uh, if you called someone the leader of the queer meter movement. Um, uh, yeah, Kimber, I no, I don't think that that was real. Um, I don't, I think it is a joke about something that is real, basically, you know, as, uh, once the, so again, yeah. Once the leader of a, you know, movement of people who are doing like experimenting with doing strange, funny, experimental things with meter that of course was going on all the time, uh, in the first half of the 20th century. So, uh, it seems to me just a kind of a joke, uh, The people, anyway, most of the people who were doing that kind of thing, most of these experimental poets of the first half of the 20th century, in my experience, took themselves way too seriously uh, to give their movements a name, anything like as funny as the queer meter movement. Um, um, but anyway, yeah. So I, so no, that that's not uh, that's not in its in its sense a real. Uh, uh, a real thing. Um, but, um, anyway, <laughs> so, but now just a poet. <laughs> it's awesome. Anyway. Um, so look at the mix here. We have two philologists, right? Um, one who is a Norse guy, Laudum, right? Uh, Anglo-Saxon, Icelandic, and comparative philology. The other who is specializes in Finno-Ugric philology and also writes romances. Um, uh, and then we have a poet who used to be an avant-garde poet, but now just a poet. Uh, and then we have a lecturer in English literature, um, so whose position is much more like Lewis's, therefore, who specializes in escapism, who seems to study and to lecture on uh, you know, science fiction and fantasy, right? I mean, uh, Jeremy could totally be a professor at Signum right now. Absolutely. Um, but, um, yeah. So, again, interesting to see the balance. There's, again, no clear... The, the, the parallels between these characters and people in the Inklings certainly have... Uh, uh, I don't want to say corroded. That seems a little harsh. Um, but... Um, uh, but yeah, um, uh, they would certainly, uh, 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 they no longer sound, it, it would be hard to draw an equivalent. I mean, if you were just given these and had to guess who was whom, right? How would you do it? You know, which one's Lewis, which one's Tolkien, right? Really, really not clear. Um, okay, let's keep going. On to the actual discussion. No, seriously, this is near the very beginning when uh, Raymer is uh, anticipating Guildford's criticism of the story he just read. No, seriously, Guildford protested. I only objected to parts, not to the whole of your latest infant, Michael, only to the first chapter and the end of the last one, really. But there, I suppose no one has ever solved the difficulty of arriving or getting to another planet, no more in literature than in life because the difficulty is in fact insoluble, I think. The barrier cannot and will not ever be passed in mortal flesh. Anyway, the opening chapters, the journey of space travel, of, of space travel tales, seem to me always the weakest. 
scientifiction as a rule, and that is a base alloy. Yes, it is, Master Frankly, so don't interrupt, just as much as the word is an ill-made portmanteau, rotten for traveling with. And that goes for your machine too, Raymer, though it's one of the better failures, perhaps. Thank you for that, Raymer growled. But it's just like you, Nicholas, to pick on the frame, which is an awkward necessity of pictures, and easy to change anyway, and say nothing about what's inside it. I suppose you must have seen something to praise inside. We know how painful you find praising anything. Isn't that the real reason why you postpone it? Okay, so... Raymer objects to the frame. He objects to the travel mechanism. Like, there needs to be a mechanism for getting somebody to another planet, right? And that's what he objects to. Um, uh, space travel, time travel, both. Remember, he's going to take a shot. Guildford is going to take a, a, a strong shot at, uh, at Wells, right? In the time machine. Uh, which he considers, again, the mechanism of the time machine itself to be completely ridiculous. And there, by the way, is one place that we know for a fact that Guildford's opinions and Tolkien's opinions overlap, right? Uh, because we, Tolkien makes a very similar comment about how ridiculous the, the machine, the time machine was in the time machine story. How, we know how much he admired the time machine as a story. That is, what's inside the frame? Um, he really admires the, the, the um, uh, Eloy and the Morlocks, but he doesn't like at all the mechanism of the time machine um, and considers it a great blemish. Um, so, but note also Guildford's premise here. Um, his premise is, it begins with the fact that he believes that the barrier cannot and will not ever be passed in mortal flesh. That is, he starts with saying, I don't think that space travel is possible. I don't think that people, we will ever travel off of Earth in our bodies to other planets. It's not going to happen. He sees no reason to believe that that will ever happen. And that is the basis of his criticism of the frames of almost all of them. Right? That's why he says the difficulty is, in fact, insoluble. When you have to make up, in order to write a story on another planet, when you have to make up, the mechanism to get them there, Guildford's problem is you leave reality behind, right? You've just got to, like, wave your hands at stuff and be like, oh, yeah, they can just kind of do that somehow. Um, and he says, like, that can never not be a weakness because you're just, you're saying what isn't, right? Um, let's keep going. Um, this is still uh, Guildford. Um, and he's talking, you know, he, 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 he says that he found it odd, the disjunction, the discord between the frame and the content of the tale. I meant odd coming from you and in its setting, for you won't get away with that framed excuse. A picture frame is not a parallel. An author's way of getting to Mars, say, is part of his story of his Mars and of his universe, as far as that particular tale goes. It's part of the picture, even if it's only in a marginal position, and it may seriously affect all that's inside. Why should it? said Frankly. Well, if there are spaceships at all in your imagined universe, you'll fail to sell it to me, for one thing, said Guildford. That's carrying your anti-machine mania too far, said Loudham. Anti-machine mania, says Tolkien. 
Surely poor writers can include things you don't like in their stories. Okay, so Loudham is taking Guildford up on this, right? Saying, okay, Guildford, we know you hate machines, right? You hate machines. You don't believe in, you know, the advancement of machines. You don't believe that spaceships are ever going to happen. Uh, so, um, uh, you know, why would you just say like, oh, well, I, you know, I'm not going to be, I'm, I'm not going to like any story that has spaceships in it. You know, come on. Um, I'm not talking about dislike at the moment, though. Guildford returned, he insists, right? I'm talking about credulity. I don't like heroic warriors, but I can bear stories about them. I believe they exist, or could. I don't think spaceships do, or could. And anyway, if you pretend that they do, and use them for space journeys in the flesh, they'll land you in spaceship sort of adventures. If you're spaceship-minded and, sci- and scientificitious, or even if you let your characters be so, it's likely enough that you'll find things of that order in your new world, or only see sites that interest such folk. Again, remember, Guildford insists you can't say that the mechanism to travel to the other planet is just a frame like a frame in a picture, right? The artist doesn't choose the frame, right? The artist paints the canvas, you know, the, like, museum curator or whatever purchaser, right, puts a frame on it. Um, so in that sense, the frame is not connected to, I mean, it's physically connected, right? But it is not part of the work of art itself. And he says, you can't, you can't say that about the travel frame for a science fiction tale. Um, and this is a very sensible thing to say, Right. An author's way of getting to Mars is part of his story of his Mars and of his universe, as far as that particular tale goes. Um, I'm a little bit less clear about exactly what Guildford means when he says, like, what exactly he's trying to convey when he says they'll land you in spaceship sort of adventures. If you're spaceship-minded or scientificitious, um, it's likely enough you'll find things of that order in your new world. Exactly what order? What scientificitious order? What does that even mean exactly? I'm a little bit less clear as to what Guildford is getting at there. Um, But I get it. Like, he doesn't like spaceships. um, And he thinks that spaceships are unrealistic. Right? He talks... Notice his emphasis on do or could. Right? Great heroic warriors do exist. Or at least they could exist. He does not believe that spaceships do or could exist. Right? Um... So, uh, um, yeah, Mary, I think it's very likely that he's thinking about things like ray guns and anti-gravity machines and things like that, that your story is going to end up involving those things. If you, once you start down the scientific, the scientific fictitious road, right. Um, then you're going to end up having a bunch of other scientific fictitious things. It's going to be a scientific fictitious universe. Sorry, I love that word. So I'm going to say that word a lot. <laughs> it's going to be that kind of universe, right? And so, yes, he's he's and he's not interested in any of those things. He doesn't believe in those things. So again, again, Guildford's the premise of Guildford's objection is that he doesn't believe it. He doesn't think it's real. Um, when you say you're going to do a spaceship, you're just making stuff up, right? It departs from reality. But you've got to have some kind of removal van, said Frankly, or else do without this kind of story. 
They may not be your sweet meat, Nicholas, but I've got a tooth for them, and I'm not going to be done out of them by you. You can wallow in scientific titian mags for all I care, said Guildford, but I've got to have literary belief in my removal van, or I won't put my furniture in it. I've never met one of those of these vehicles yet that suspended my disbelief an inch off the floor. Well, your disbelief evidently needs a power crane, says Frankly, a lovely jab at uh, Mr. Machine, uh, uh, anti-machine mania. You should look at some of the forgotten old masters, like Wells, if you've ever heard of him. I love this idea that by the 1980s, nobody even remembers who H.G. Wells was. Like Wells, if you've ever heard of him. I admit that what his first men found in the moon was a bathos after the journey, but the machine and the journey were splendid. I don't, of course, believe in a gravitation insulator outside the story, but inside the story it worked, and Wells made damn good use of it. And voyages can end in grubby, vulgar little harbors, and yet be very much worthwhile. Okay. So, uh... <laughs> Carita says, who says sweet meat in the 80s? Yeah, exactly. Oh, we're kind of failing in... Well, see, no, but that's why Carita... That's one of the things, probably, that proves it was written in the 40s, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um... John, exactly. What is being debated here is secondary belief versus suspension of disbelief, right? Um, Nicholas can't get there, right? Nicholas Guildford, he he says, I can invest no secondary belief in this, right? But notice, John, Nicholas can't invest secondary belief in these machines, right? Because he can't invest primary belief in them. He is connecting primary and secondary belief very firmly here because he doesn't believe that space travel is really possible, is ever going to be possible in the flesh for humans. Therefore, anyone who tries to write a story containing a spaceship, he can't buy into. He refuses to invest himself. He refuses to invest secondary belief because he lacks primary belief, those two things are firmly attached to each other as far as he's concerned. Frankly, is... Um, uh, sort of trying to call him out on this, right? I mean, the point that, that Frankly makes, especially in the, in the latter paragraph there, is that, you know, like, it, it doesn't... like He says, I don't believe in gravitation insulators outside of the story, right? He doesn't he does not have primary belief that the machine that Wells uses or you know it exists or could exist necessarily, right? But he says within the story it works and he made damn good use of it. Frankly says he is willing to invest what Tolkien calls secondary belief in this mechanism, even though he doesn't believe in it in the primary world. Right? But Guildford won't take that step. He says, I've got to have literary belief in my removal van. But there's an irony there. He's not talking about uh, uh, literary belief. He's not talking about secondary belief, which is what Tolkien called that in On Fairy Stories. What he's stuck on is primary belief, right? Um, so it's interesting, on the one hand, exactly, Takako, he is saying it lacks verisimilitude. It is insufficiently verisimilitudinous because he won't invest literary belief in it 
if he can't invest real belief in it, if he mm-hmm. doesn't believe that it's actually possible in the real world. And Nicholas Guildford is extremely convinced that space travel in spaceships is never going to be able to happen beyond the orbit of the moon. Um, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, so, okay. Um, so here's the interesting thing to me. As I say, there's there's a lot of things that seem to parallel Nicholas Guildford's views to Tolkien's views. If there is a particular place where Tolkien's voice would be identified here, it would seem to be in Guildford. Especially since it's Guildford who's going to end up delivering the criticism of Paralandra, which it kind of seems from those opening titles might have been the whole purpose of this entire exercise from the beginning, right? And yet, it's an interesting thing to note that Nicholas Guildford, though speaking in Tolkien's voice and certainly sharing Tolkien's self-deprecatingly characterized anti-machine mania, right, um, doesn't seem to get the distinction between, or at least not to, to, to buy into the distinction between primary belief and secondary belief. Um, let's keep going. Quite so, Guildford agreed. This is not immediately after, sorry. I'm skipping a bit here. Uh, and the speed of light, or certainly anything like it, or anything exceeding it, is on that basis incredible. If you're going to be scientific, or more properly speaking, mechanical, at any rate, for anyone writing now, I admit the criteria of credibility may change, though as far as I can see, genuine science, as distinct from mechanical romance, narrows the possibilities rather than expands them. But I still stick to my original point. The machine used the machine used sets the tone. I found spaceships sufficiently credible for raw taste until I grew up and wanted to find something more useful on Mars than ray guns and faster vehicles. Spaceships will take you to that kind of country, no doubt, but I don't want to go there. There is no need now to travel to find it. Oh, that's what the 80s are going to be like. Ray guns and fast vehicles. Well, kind of. No, but there is an attraction in its being far away, even if it's nasty and stupid, said Frankly. Even if it's the same, you could make a good story. Inevitably satirical in effect, perhaps, but not really primarily so, out of a journey to find a replica of Earth and its denizens. Okay, so... um, Yeah, um... Tarlonio thinks that Frankly's been watching episodes of the original Star Trek series. Yeah, like the like the the planet that has modeled itself after nineteen twenties gangsters, right? Uh, or like the alternate version of uh, of uh, like you know future Roman history or something. Yes, no, exactly. I totally agree with that. Um, yes, Robert Brown says also predicting Planet of the Apes. Yes, exactly. Um, yeah. Um, again, Guildford's emphasis, right, is that it's like yeah, you can do a ray gun story, and if you want to tell a ray gun story, then sure, by all means, get there by a spaceship and then shoot each other with ray guns and zoom really fast on zoomy futuristic vehicles. If that's the kind of story you want to tell, that's okay. But, but again, his problem is not just. Remember, he said it's not about likes. 
It's not that I dislike ray guns and I dislike those stories. He does dislike them, right? But he says that's not the point. The point is that he doesn't believe in them. Genuine science, as distinct from mechanical romance, narrows the possibilities rather than expands them, right? Um, He does not believe that travel at the speed of light or anything exceeding it is credible on a scientific basis, right? And he's... Like, not wrong, right? I mean, I enjoy Star Trek, but you have to admit that warp travel in Star Trek, you just have to kind of accept warp travel in Star Trek as a mechanism, right? Like, trust me, we can go faster than the speed of light. There was a breakthrough, somehow, right? And the warp coil was invented, and now we can travel faster than light. There you go, right? Um, uh, yeah. Fine. <laughs> Fine, yeah. Or folding space in Dune, absolutely. Um, yes. So, you know, but those are machines in this technical sense. Not not machines in the sense of, you know, like actual engineered machines, but literary machines, right? Um, a, a, a feature of a literary story just designed to make something happen, right? To make something possible. Um, so, yeah. Um, again, that's that's okay. And if you like that kind of thing, you can invest in that. But Guildford draws the line, right? Guildford, don't show, don't, don't start talking to Nicholas Guildford about warp coils, right? Nicholas Guildford would, you know, tell Gene Roddenberry where he gets off, right? Forget about that. He's, he's, he's not having it, right? Frankly, would lo- I agree. Fla- frankly, would absolutely love the original Star Trek, right? Absolutely. That's just exactly the kind of thing that he's talking about. You're completely correct. Um, because he's willing to go there, right? He doesn't care. Warp coil's fine. We've got a warp coil, right? As long as they make good use of it, as long as it works, as long as you can invest secondary belief, invest literary belief. But Nicholas Guildford refuses, refuses to leave the world, the real world behind. Yeah, James Lieback says, when you talk about mechanical romance, it's hard not to think of Star Wars, too. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah, uh, Robert, I wonder, I wonder if Tolkien ever saw Doctor Who or the original Star Trek, for that matter. I mean, he was alive. Both of them were on during his lifetime. Um, you know, did he ever see them? Now, Star Trek was American, right? So there's good reason why he wouldn't have seen Star Trek. But you're right, Robert, he could have seen Doctor Who. Um, and Robert, thinking of the original, thinking back to the first Doctor, right? The very first couple seasons of Doctor Who, talk about hand-waving mechanism. I mean, the TARDIS, for crying out loud. It's, in fact, Doctor Who isn't even, the old Doctor Who, the first Doctor, Doctor Who, is an even better illustration um, uh, than the original Star Trek Tarlonio, right? Because the, 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 the whole, the point of the original series, I mean, clearly in the first season, the TARDIS is this not only mechanism, but like out of control mechanism. They can't even steer it. It just takes them random places. They get out, and all of a sudden, they're somewhere else. They're somewhere in Earth's history. They're somewhere on another planet's future. There's, you know, it's just, it is literally, boldly, 
a mechanism, uh, to like a you know a thing they go into and it's cool and it's, it's vaguely scientific fictitious, no clue how it works. They can't even control it. The doctor himself can't even control it, um, and um, and they, you know, and then they land somewhere and the doors open and now they're they're in that place. So exactly the kind of thing that frankly wants to see, right? Um, is is precisely this uh, this premise, right? Um, yeah, yeah, and yes, yes, it's true. Aslan's compass. The day Doctor Who aired, the day of JFK's assassination, and the day of C.S. Lewis's death. Same day. Yeah, exactly. C.S. Lewis, we know, didn't see Doctor Who because he died on the first day it aired. Uh, but Tolkien lived on for another decade. So, um, yeah. Um, anyway, um, okay. Oh, yes, and Aldous Huxley died that day as well. It's true, yes. Aldous Huxley, C.S. Lewis, and J.F.K. all died on the same day. Yep, that is correct. That is co- and I didn't realize that that was the day that Doctor Who aired, too. That I didn't know. I knew it was the year, but I didn't know. I didn't know that was the day. Anyway, okay, so, but again, Guildford would not like Doctor Who. We know that, right? Because, again, it's not... Um, he he could not. There is no way if he doesn't like spaceships, he would hate the TARDIS, right? Um, so yeah, uh, okay. Where is all this going? Now we get to the criticism of Lewis. Remember, they kind of gave him a pass on Out of the Silent Planet, right? Yeah, like the spaceship was a blemish, and sure he did all the hand waving stuff. Like okay, they're in a spaceship. How does it work? Some kind of solar raise. Yeah. But I mean, in fact, the way that Lewis does it, I think is really clever, right? By the fact that his protagonist is not a scientist and has no idea. And the scientist who, who does refuses to tell him, right? So, you know, it's not, he doesn't give any explanation, but he gives a good explanation for why he doesn't give any explanation. Right. Uh, so it's, it's okay. But, uh, but interestingly, what they like about it is the fact that it's just the bad guys who use the spaceship. And so, therefore, the fact that Ransom is, uh, you know, dragged, is drugged and and uh, uh, carried into a spaceship against his will, um, kind of, th- for that reason, they're willing to give Lewis, you know, that historical writer, C.S. Lewis, um, a pass on, um, um, on Out of the Silent Planet. All right, all right, said Loudham, but let's get back to the incoherence. It's the discord between the objects and the finding of the better tales and their machines that upsets you. And I think you have something there. Lewis, for instance, used a spaceship, but he kept it for his villains and packed his hero the second time in a crystal coffin without machinery. Says Loudham, as if that makes it better. Right? Um, as if the lack of machinery... So, for those of you who haven't read it, in Par- so in Out of the Silent Planet, we have... I was just, That's what I was just describing. In the second book, in Paralandra, so he, he gets taken to Mars in Out of the Silent Planet. Ransom, the philologist, who is kind of Tolkien-like, um, goes, to, uh, goes to Mars. In the second book, Paralandra, he goes to Venus, but he's not brought in a spaceship by the bad guys this time. This time he is shipped. They have this coffin, which looks like it's made out of crystal or something. And he lies down in it and they pack him into it and cover his eyes. And he gets uh, uh, transported through the heavens by angels, basically, Eldila, um, and winds up in Venus, being put in some kind of stasis for the journey. 
himself, his own body. Um, but of course, one of the things that's noteworthy is it's the thing is trans, translucent, the coffin thing that you know pod uh, that he gets put in, and so half of his body is exposed to the sun and the other half isn't. So when he gets to Perelandra, like half of his body is like red and sunburned and the other half is all pasty white. Um, so he looks weird. And the, the lady of Perelandra, when she first meets him, names him Piebald. Um, uh, she, that's, that's the name she gives him because of how he looks. Okay. Um, so again, Laudam is suggesting this since he is transported semi-magically in a crystal coffin without machinery, like we're not pretending this is a spaceship that can blast off to, to Venus, it's better, right? Half-hearted, said Guildford. Personally, I found the compromise very unconvincing. It was willfully inefficient, too. Poor Ransom got half-toasted for no sound reason that I could see. The power that could hurl the coffin to Venus could, one would have thought, have devised a material that let in light without excessive heat. I found the coffin much less credible than the Eldils, and granted the Eldils unnecessary. There was a page or two of smokescreen about the outward journey to Paralandra, but it was not thick enough to hide the fact that this semi-transparent coffin was, after all, only a material packing case, a special one-man spaceship of unknown motive power. It was necessary to the tale, of course, to have safe delivery of Ransom's living terrestrial body to Venus, but this impossible sort of parcel post did not appeal to me as a solution of the problem. As I say, I doubt if there is a solution, but I should prefer an old-fashioned wave of a wizard's wand, or a word of power in old solar from an Eldil. Nothing less would suffice. A miracle. Okay. Um, So... His criticism here is that it's it's a compromise, right? Um, it's a it's a it's a halfway it's it's half-hearted, right? On the one hand, it doesn't have a normal mechanism, right? There's no machine, there's no TARDIS, there's no spaceship, right? It's just he goes into this coffin and he's conveyed, not exactly magically, but mysteriously, right? And so, therefore, no spaceship. So, you know, Guildford would like it better, right? No, Guildford is uncomfortable with it. He says it's still, it's too mechanical still, right? If he has to go in this, why does he get, why does, you know, the the, the sunburn, he doesn't like the sunburn thing, right? Um, there we get this verisimilitudinous detail, which you'd think he'd like, but he doesn't like it. Right, and he doesn't like it because it's again, it's asking us to place this thing, this crystal coffin business, into our primary world, right? Like so, as if the normal rules of our world, of our universe, were applying here. And he says, if you're going to ask me to go that far, then I expect you to go further in meeting them, right? Notice that he doesn't say, "I hate any idea of traveling to Venus." Note what he says he would like better. He would like better an old-fashioned wave of a wizard's wand, right? That at le- then at least we know where we are, or a word of power. You know, once you grant the Eldila, they can. You know, so he had like a half miracle, right? Um, yeah, yeah, um, and he didn't like the whole half miracle thing, right? That. Uh, um, 
that Lewis did. He want nothing less would suffice a miracle. So notice, Mr. Primary World is okay with wizards' wands and miracles? How does that work exactly? Here's where he gets down to what he believes. Guildford, now, is the essence. He doesn't, th- these are not his terms, right? But thinking in our terms, this is like the difference between fantasy and science fiction, right? Very well, then. All the more reason for having stories about they could or they will. Anybody would think you'd gone back to all that old-fashioned stuff about escapism. Do you object to fairy tales? Right? So I forget who's speaking here. I think it's Frankly. Is calling Guildford on this whole primary and secondary belief thing. He's like, wait a second. Like, why are you so hung up on this? Why won't you just let go and invest secondary belief, like Frankly was saying he, he was able to do with Wells? Right? You don't have to believe in gravitation suspensors uh, in real life in order to believe how it works in the story, right? Um, uh, if you don't believe... So so he, Guildford, has just said he doesn't believe that people could or will travel into space, right? Travel beyond the speed of lights, travel beyond the circle of the moon. And so I think it's frankly responds and says, all the more reason for having stories about it then. Um... Uh, and says, you know, are you like one of those old-fashioned people? You know, way back in the old days, those, like, old troglodytes who used to say that fairy tales were useless because they were escapist and weren't connected to the real world, right? Um, is that the line that you're taking here? Do you object to fairy tales? No, I don't. But they make their own worlds with their own laws. Then why can't I make mine and let its laws allow spaceships? Because it won't then be your private world, of course, said Guildford. Surely that is the main point of that kind of story at an intelligent level. The Mars in such a story is Mars. The Mars that is. And the story is, as you've just admitted, a substitute for satisfaction of our insatiable curiosity about the universe as it is. So a space travel story ought to be made to fit as far as we can see the universe as it is. If it doesn't or doesn't try to, then it then it does become a fairy story of a debased kind. But there is no need to travel by rocket to find fairy. It can be anywhere or nowhere. Okay, so we see the uh, the the point that he's making here, right? He doesn't object to fantasy. Fantasy. If you want to have wizards who can wave their wands and transport people. To distant planets, that's okay. He's willing to do that. He's willing to invest secondary belief, to invest literary belief in a completely fictitious world, right? In a fantasy world, which operates by its own laws. That's okay. Where he draws the line is the overlap between that world and our world. And what he is arguing here, the, the, the core of his argument, is that science fiction story, what we call science fiction, right? Stories about space travel are at their essence not fantasy. They are not a secondary world, an invented world, right? An imagined world which operates by its own laws. They are rather an imagination of our world. Again, if you tell a story that happens on Mars... Right, the point of that story is that the Mars in such a story is the Mars that is. 
right? The what makes that powerful is imagining what it would really what would it would be like to travel to Mars. Yeah, you can make up a fantasy Mars. Or you can make up a fantasy planet and name it Mars and have it look kind of like Mars. Just like you can make up a fantasy Earth and call it Earth and have it look kind of like our Earth, but it's an alternate Earth, right? You can do that, that's okay. But he says that and you know, doing that it's it's just a debased fairy story. You're just doing fantasy, but it's debased fantasy. Just like you're not even being honest about it. You're like pretending that it's real, but it's not real, right? Just like have wizards. It's okay, right? Um, uh, so he'd like Star Wars, but not Star Trek, Tony? Yes. Um, and I think we can see here, uh, Boomful, I think you were joking earlier on about, I wonder what Guildford uh, would think about mitochlorians. I think we have the answer here, right? Um, if you, when you start talking about mitochlorians, it's now debased. I mean, honestly, I, I think this is a big part of what a lot of people respond. I mean, there's a reason that many people of my, most people of my age hate mitochlorians, right? Um, uh, yes. Um, yeah. So, Tolkien through Guildford, if we're imagining that Guildford is speaking Tolkien's point of view, which I think is a big risk to say, right? I don't know that we can be firm in that conclusion. Guildford, anyway, is voicing this particular argument that if you are going to tell a story, like there are two good acceptable kinds of stories. There are stories about our real world and there are stories about fairy. Right, there's stories that take place in a in a fantasy world, and both are fine, both are okay. But when you try to go in the middle, when you try to just tell a story that's kind of like a story about our world or our universe, but you just try to kind of tweak one or two little things to make it work, then you're sort of cheating. That's where Guildford won't go, right? And that's why his gap about... So it's not like he's just Mr. Primary World all the time. He's fine with fairy tales, right? So his refusal to give secondary belief if he can't give primary belief is not universal. It's just when you're... when Basically, he feels like an author is trying to do both. That's where this whole conversation gets. And like I said, Guildford is the dominant conversation... Uh, you know, dominant voice in this conversation all the way through. Right, all the way through this discussion. So it's really hard for me not to see this early part of the Notion Club papers as essentially teasing out this argument. Again, not saying that Tolkien 100% agrees with Guildford's argument, uh, that it is Tolkien's own argument, but Guildford's argument is the primary thrust of this. Um... Then we have the unexpected turn. Dolbear wakes up. Dolbear grinned. But it was not that chapter in itself that interested me, he said. I think most of the discussion has been off the point, off the immediately interesting point. The hottest trail that Nicholas got onto was the discord, as you yourself said, Eri. That's Loudon. That's what you should follow up now, 
I should feel it strongly, even if spaceships were as regrettably possible as the transatlantic bus service. There's a transatlantic bus service. I want to go on a transatlantic bus. Michael, your real story is wholly out of keeping with what you call the frame. And that's odd in you. I've never felt such a jar before, not in any of your work. I find it hard to believe that the machine and the tail were made by the same man. Indeed, I don't think they were. You wrote the first chapter, The Space Voyage, and also The Homecoming. Rather slipshod, that, and my attention wandered. You made it up, as they say. And as you've not tried your hand at that sort of thing before, it was not much above the average. But I don't think you wrote the story inside. I wonder what you've been up to. What are you driving at, said Jeremy. It was typical Raymer all through. Nearly every sentence was hallmarked. And even if he wanted to put us off with borrowed goods, where could he get them from? So, Jeremy thinks... Um, Jeremy thinks that Dolbear is accusing Raymer of plagiarism, right? That he took this story written by somebody else and just wrote the frame on either side, and that that's the reason for the jar. A very sensible way to interpret what Dolbear said there, right? Um, and uh, and it, it, it kind of sounds like that's in fact what he's saying, um, but that of course isn't what he's going to be saying. Um, uh, one quick note, though. Uh, uh, James Brown, uh, sorry, James Lieback and Robert Brown combined both your names there. Um, we're both commenting on the relationship of this idea of Guildford's theory about the primary and secondary worlds, the relevance of these things to Tolkien's alterations of his mythology afterwards. I think those are wonderful points, gentlemen, and we will take them up when we talk about Morgoth's Ring. Um, we will see him... Uh, I agree that we will see him wrestling with some of these exact questions. And, you are, and I hope that one or both of you will remind me of Guildford's argument um, in this passage, in these passages we've been talking about here, uh, when we get there uh, to the Myths Reconsidered <clears throat> section of... Uh, uh, of Morgoth's ring, because I agree with you. That's very relevant. That's very important. Um, okay, but I don't want to get dis too distracted in that now, because that's a whole other thing, and we haven't gotten there yet. But we will, I promise, we will come back to this when we get there. So what is Dolbear re really saying? You're missing my point, said Dolbear. I shouldn't have said wrote. I should have said made up, invented. I say again, I wonder what you've been up to, Raymer. Telling a story answered Raymer glumly, staring at the fire. Yes, said Dolbear, but don't try to do that in the nursery sense or we'll have to roast you. Right? Tell a story meaning to lie, right? He got up and looked round at us all. His eyes looked very bright under bristling brows. Uh, by the way, I, I love Dolbear's nickname. Remember they call him Ruthless Rufus? <laughs> that is a fantastic name. Anyway, his eyes looked very bright under bristling brows. He turned them sharply on Raymer. Come, he said. Come clean. Where's this place? And how did you get there? I don't know where it is, said Raymer quietly, still staring at the fire. But you're quite right. I went there. At least, well, I don't think our language fits the case. But there is such a world, and I saw it once. He sighed. If my, uh, um... 
yeah, I, I also like bright under bristling brows. Uh, yes, the uh, the alliteration on BR is delightful there, Devora, I agree. Um, if my original theory was correct and he had initially composed this debate as a way of sort of amusingly uh, fictionalizing his critique of Lewis's Paralandra and, of course, uh, you know, basically his space books. Um, this is where things suddenly change when Dolbear wakes up. When Dolbear wakes up and comes back to this other point. But no, 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 it's about the disjunction. Forget the business about the mechanism. Let's essentially drop that whole discussion that we've been having because where we're going is somewhere different, right? Um, if we go back, of course, to Dolbear's comments, um, I find it hard to believe that the machine and the tail were made by the same man. Indeed, I don't think they were, right? What he's saying is, you made up the frame. That's invented. You didn't make up. You are telling it. You did write that yourself, but you, you're not making it up. That really happened. You're just describing your experience. You're describing something you've seen. You're not making stuff up. Um, where's this place, and how did you get there? And Raymer quietly confirms Dolbear's exactly right. He went there, sort of went there. There is such a world anyway, and he saw it once. We've been prepared for something like this, right? The prevision, the some kind of visionary experience. And of course, this, I think, and as we were discussing earlier on, the fact that the Lost Road was always the companion piece to Out of the Silent Planet in its conception, right? That bet that the two of them made, Lewis and Tolkien, time travel and space travel, their toss-up for it, right? Lewis got space travel, Tolkien got time travel. But one of Tolkien's biggest challenges was always the machine, right? He hated the time machine. He didn't want to do anything like that. He finds that mechanical frame awkward, right? So in The Lost Road, we saw him beginning to experiment with something else, a mechanism of time travel that doesn't have to do with machines, but instead has to do with dreams and reincarnation, essentially. Um, but, uh, so, that his critique of Lewis in Lewis's space trilogy would merge back into this, again, nothing, it's, it seems, could be more likely, right? More, more probable than that. Um, then you do believe me, said Raymer? That is, he's talking to Guildford here and while they're on their way home. I thought that all of you but Dolbear thought I was spoofing or else going batty. You in particular, Nick. Certainly not spoof, Michael. As for battiness, well, in a sense, your claim is a batty one, even if genuine, isn't it? At least it is if I've any inkling of it. Though I've nothing to go on but impressions, and such hints as I've managed to get out of Rufus about your recent doings. He's the only one of us that has seen much of you for quite a time. But I rather fancy that even he does not know a great deal. Raymer laughed quietly. You're a hound. I mean, a sleuth hound, by nature, Nicholas. But I am not going to lay down any more trail tonight. Wait till next week. You can then have a look at my belfry and count all the bats. I'm tired. Your claim is a batty one, even if genuine, 
right? Uh, so even if you uh, do believe that this has happened, even if you have seen something, it doesn't mean you're not crazy, right? Um, and yes, Tony, the if I have any inkling of it is a nice uh, is a nice nod at the end uh, right there. Um, uh, Nicholas begins with uh, uh, not assumption, suspicion that something weird has been going on with Raymer, right? So he finds himself more ready to believe that Raymer has been having some kind of unusual experience, right? Um, so you probably have bats up there in the belfry. We'll just count them next week. Um, okay, so one thing I want to be looking at, to some extent in the, you know, in the next section when we get to hearing about Raymer's visions and everything and we start moving towards the Numenorean stuff that begins to emerge out of, the, out of all this, um, we're going to get kind of further and further away from this initial long discussion about, um, you know, the frame of uh, science fiction and stuff. But don't forget it, right? Um, I, we're not going to be leaving it behind completely, I think. So let's try to remember, um, try to keep this in mind as we move forward, because I think we might find uh, those things. And remember, especially this business about the primary and the secondary world, literary belief versus primary belief, right? Um I think that these things are not going to end up irrelevant uh, to the stuff that we're going to be looking at later on. Okay. All right. Thanks, everybody. Uh, I will be back next week for another discussion. So next week is going to be the 31st of July. Um, and then I'll be here again on the 7th. So um, we will have two more classes before I'm going to be away then the next week after that on the 14th. Um, but I will be here for the next two weeks still. So see you guys next week for another Notion Club paper session. Uh, thanks everybody for your discussion tonight and I'll see you guys next week. Bye now.